0: Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is the audio of our monthly seminar. Subscribe and support this programming at patreon.com slash the socialist program to join live once a month and ask Brian Becker your questions and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thanks so much for your help in keeping this independent show going. We can make this program with you, but not without you. So honored to have everyone here. Thank you so much for joining. As always, it's such an honor and a privilege and such a great opportunity for us to be able to get some questions and hear what people who listen to the show, who support the show are thinking and and wondering and asking about and how they're thinking about these issues. And it always sparks really interesting conversation and really interesting discussion. And draws out different analysis than, you know, might ordinarily be drawn out if it was just Brian or just me or just, you know, our guests thinking about these issues. So really, really appreciate everyone who sends in questions and really, really appreciate everybody who supports this show. We say this every seminar and we say this every show, but we do that for a reason, because we really cannot actually do this show without you and without your support and without you being a part of this project, which you are, and without all of the the hundreds of people who are a part of this project we have you know many more many many more listeners people who listen from as we were just talking about around the country by and large but also around the world who who clearly you know appreciate and use this content which is what it's for and but we also have a number you know hundreds of supporters who we deeply rely on and are just really really thankful for so with that i will Brian turn this over to you we're going to talk about the more v harper Supreme Court case the oral arguments were heard last Wednesday. I was down at the Supreme Court in front it was really fascinating to talk to people who were really really upset but there hasn't been a lot of media coverage about this. I actually talked to someone there who who found out about it from her teenage son who found out about it on Instagram. You know, she watches the news every day. She reads the paper some days like she but she hadn't heard about it. So, but it's a big deal and so we're we're really excited to dig into this because It's important. It's incredibly important that we talk about this and incredibly important that we understand what's happening. So without further ado, Brian, let's get started with some of your initial comments on on what happened last week in the arguments.
1: Right. The oral arguments, which people can listen to them in recording if you want to. You can also get a transcript for yourself. We obviously have been talking about the Moore case, Morby Harper. Excuse me, everybody, too, because I, I have a a cold or some upper respiratory illness, so I may sound a bit odd, but we've been talking about this case since early July at a time when no one, or not no one, but almost no one was talking about it. And we were making the argument that the left and the socialist program in particular, and others needed to sound the alarm about the true magnitude of, or potential magnitude of the Moravy Harper case which had been accepted by the Supreme court. And as we've said before, the rules require that at least four of the nine members of the Supreme court want to hear the case. And most cases are not heard. There's probably a hundred thousand cases or some vast number of cases that applications are sent to the court for hoping that the court will review them. But the court picks about 70 to hundred per year. So they pick cases with intentionality. They want to do something in particular. And when we looked at the Moore v. Harper case and coming as it did on the heels of the Dobbs decision, where the very ultra-right, far-right majority in the Supreme Court, I mean, some of them are even more far-right than others, eviscerated Roe v. Wade, got rid of abortion rights as a national right in the Dobbs decision, we made the argument that the right wing, the ultra right was now emboldened, emboldened to carry out other parts of the ultra right wing program, not simply abortion. And when you think about the merits of the case, and this is what we analyzed. And by the way, we have a new book that's just come out. It's called The Supreme Court versus Democracy, Moore v. Harper. The case is, is pretty straightforward in one way, this Republican state legislature in North Carolina so thoroughly gerrymandered through racist and bigoted and discriminatory voting practices, so gerrymandered the state of North Carolina that even though about half the state votes Democratic, probably 10 of the 13 members of the congressional delegation from North Carolina would end up being Republicans. And the state Supreme Court Said, this is outlandish. It's too much. Go back to the drawing board. And the state Supreme Court itself entered the redistricting scheme. And, you know, redistricting happens every 10 years after the census, whatever the latest census is. So the state Supreme Court said that this is clearly a biased gerrymandering scheme such that it makes it impossible for Democrats to win. And it has very far reaching implications for the black community in North Carolina. And the state legislature, Moore, who's the speaker of the house in North Carolina said, we want to go to the Supreme Court because according to the U.S. Constitution, only state legislatures have authority, have sole authority, exclusive authority to determine how elections are organized within their state, including federal elections. And this clause, which is the premise, the electoral clause in the Constitution, which is the premise for the so-called independent state legislature theory, says that the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution way back in 1787 dictated that only state legislatures have authority over state elections. And of course, in the United States, when we have an election every two years or even every four years during the presidential election, it's actually 50 different elections. Because of the federalist system, the elections are organized on a statewide basis. And for four members, at least, of the Supreme Court to say they wanted to hear the Moore case, meant that they wanted to say something about the independent state legislature theory it meant that they had some inclination and, we, and our premise was that having been emboldened by their ability to get rid of abortion rights which were very popular and considered to be you know a right that could not be taken away that these justices now wanted to basically reorganize the way elections The U.S. government, not just at the statewide level, not just at the congressional level, but potentially at the federal level. And so when we think about what happened in 2020, where Trump and the Trumpites argued that the vote had been corrupted by fraud, that there was electoral manipulation, and they challenged the elector slates in Georgia and in Arizona and in Pennsylvania, where Trump narrowly lost the popular vote and thus lost the electoral college votes. Their argument was basically that the state legislatures and they alone could determine which electoral slate was valid, not how people thought the outcome would be determined, which is they looked at the news. They saw that the election officials had counted the votes. The majority in that state, the electoral votes would go to the candidate who won. So, obviously, coming as it does after the contention by Trump that the election was stolen, after the January 6th effort to disperse Congress and basically decertify the election outcome, if the Supreme Court, this very right-wing Supreme Court, three of them have been picked by Trump, two of them have been picked by George W. Bush, who should never have been president in the first place because that was a stolen election back in 2000, when the Supreme Court stopped the vote count in Florida, that these people would be prepared if they could get away with it to change the way elections are determined. Now, what we really are saying here and what we've been saying on the show and with the new book pamphlet that we've just published, is that the ultra right wanted to go and do what it wanted to do through the back door meaning quietly where they could not be seen because they couldn't really do it through the front door where they could be seen. And what I mean by that is that if they could get the Supreme Court to kind of quietly accept the independent state legislature theory, that would mean when 2024 election comes around, if the Supreme Court had accepted in whole or in part the independent state legislature theory, That would set the stage for right-wing forces to basically steal the next election. They tried in 2020, and by right-wing, I mean the ultra-right. We can make the argument that the Democrats are a form of right-wing party, too. We certainly have on our show, but I'm talking about the far-right, the ultra-right. Anyway, the stage is being set not only for sort of increasing racist gerrymandering, but also to basically change the way government is formed in a way that would allow the creation of a permanent right-wing government in the United States. Now, since we started sounding the alarm back in July, it has become more and more of a public issue. And in fact, the New York Times has made a, a major editorial, so did NPR. Interestingly, and again, you can read it for yourself, the Federalist Society, which handpicked the right-wing judges on the Supreme Court and the right-wing judges on the appeals court and the right-wing judges who have stacked the federal district court, at least the president or one of the co-chairs of the Federalist Society filed an amicus curé brief, a friend of the court brief on the Moore case. And this person, again, a high official in the Federalist Society, insisted that the Supreme Court should not rule on behalf of Moore that it would be a disruptor for the American political system, that the stakes were high. It's very, very interesting that there has now been a split between the right and the far right. And of course, we've said on our show, as our friend comedian Randy Credico sometimes jokes in his act, he said there's a fine line, very fine line between the right the ultra right and the third reich and he's not wrong about that so it's very important for the left to be paying careful attention not just to be thinking about politics in general but to be looking and specifically analyzing what's going on at the different stages in this political evolution in this trajectory of US politics which have been moving kind of consistently to the right within the bourgeoisie even while big sections of the population have been moving to the left. Now, I wanna read a little bit to you from the New York Times. This is the editorial that came out on December 9th. This case should have never made it to the Supreme Court. It's the editorial board of the New York Times. I'm gonna try your patience by reading you a little bit because I think it's important. Of course, the New York Times is the newspaper of record an important, perhaps the most important newspaper within the constellation of bourgeois media. Quote, the most important case for American democracy, close quote, in the nation's history. That's how the former appeals court judge, J. Michael Ludig described the Moore v. Harper, an extraordinary lawsuit that the Supreme Court considered in oral arguments Wednesday morning. Judge Littig, a conservative and a widely respected legal thinker, is not one for overstatement. Yet most Americans aren't paying attention to the case because it involves some confusing terminology and an arcane legal theory. It is essential that people understand just how dangerous this case is to the fundamental structure of the American government and that enough justices see the legal fallacies and protect our democracy. Again, everybody, this is the New York Times editorial. First, the backstory on the case. In 2021, North Carolina lawmakers redrew their congressional maps. The state had 13 districts at the time and its voters were more or less evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. But Republicans who are in control of North Carolina state legislature didn't want fair maps. They wanted power. In one of the most egregious gerrymanders in the nation, they drew 10 seats intended to favor themselves. The North Carolina courts were not amused. A panel of three trial judges found that the 2021 maps were, quote, intentionally and carefully designed to maximize Republican advantage, close quote so much so that Republicans could win legislative majorities even when the Democrats won more votes statewide. The state Supreme Court struck down the maps, including finding that they violated the North Carolina's constitutional guarantees of free elections, free speech, free assembly, and equal protection. This should have been the end of it. A state court applying the state constitution to strike down a state law But North Carolina's Republican lawmakers appealed, arguing that the U.S. Constitution does not give state courts authority to rule on their congressional maps, even though the legislature had passed a law authorizing the courts to review redistricting plans like these. Instead, the lawmakers are relying on this untested theory that asserts that state legislatures Enjoy nearly unlimited power to set and change rules for federal elections. So that's the opening paragraphs from the New York Times. And I think it's, I think they're not wrong. I think the New York Times, even though we disagree with the Times mostly, they're not wrong here, nor is Judge Littig, who's a conservative. This would be potentially a very radical restructuring of the U.S. government to favor the ultra right in a way that they believe, the right wing believes, and I think the New York Times believes would not only favor the Republicans, but lead to a countervailing mass movement of people who were angry about the negation of democratic rights. And I think that's the nub of it. The ultra right here is overreaching and parts of the right wing of the ruling class can see that this overreach could backfire. And instead of fortifying the position of the ultra-right, which by the way, is just the position of corporate America, right? The rights of of capital to do anything, to treat workers any which way, to destroy the environment. The ultra-right program is the program of the capitalist bourgeoisie. It's not simply a bunch of right-wing like maniacs, even though they are maniacal. And I think that parts of the establishment, including the Federalist Society, which is very right-wing, fears that if the ultra ultra right within the court, meaning Alito and Clarence Thomas and Gorsuch were to go ahead with their plans, that it could destabilize the capitalist political system in a way that could lead to even revolutionary or certainly very radical outcomes. And not only in the direction of fascism, also in the direction of genuine revolution for progressive change. I wanna say before we open the phone and do the question and answer period, Nicole, I wanna just remind everyone that in, and I'm using a Marxist sort of analytic framework here, and Marxism teaches that within the capitalist society, there is the structure of society, which is a structure based on class division, a structure based on exploitation and oppression, A system whereby a very small part of the population, 1% or less than 1%, has all of the decision making power when it comes to the economy because they are the legal owners of property, meaning the economy which is worked at by labor, by workers, and which could not perform or do anything without the labor of workers, that these workers don't have any real democratic capacity to. Change or determine how decisions are made because they're not the owners, and that that's the structure of society, but then there is in Marxism, as Marx and Engels and Lenin later teach, there is the superstructure which is how the capitalist structure, the economic foundations of society, how it's all kept together, and for that you need a superstructure and by the superstructure we include the government, the state apparatus the media and the other main central institutions that help mold opinion, including education and religious institutions. And from our point of view, from a Marxist point of view, we recognize that the structure of capitalism can have, even though the core is the same, the core is based on the exploitation of labor, that the forms of the superstructure can be altered in many, many different ways. And the alteration of superstructure doesn't necessarily upset the structure of exploitation, but it can have a profound impact on the lives of the people in society, including the majority, the working class. So for instance, in 1933, Hitler came to power and imposed on German society a fascist dictatorship. The capitalist structure, the capitalist property relations were not changed. Hitler replaced a more democratic, tortured form of democracy, but a democratic government with a fascist dictatorship. That was 1933. In 1973, Augusto Pinochet overthrew the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende three years after it had been elected, and Pinochet imposed a military dictatorship on Chilean society. But the basic structure of society didn't change. It was still the capitalist system of exploitation. Britain, for instance, and many other countries went from an absolutist monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, whereby there was still a monarch, but there was a conditional authority on the monarch's ability to rule based on a constitution that included, say in the case of Britain, a parliament. Then there's the kind of monarchy that exists in Saudi Arabia, an absolute monarchy. There's no form of democracy, both in the case of UK and in the case of Saudi Arabia, these are in their structures, capitalist societies, no different, but the form of the superstructure has changed. In the case of the United States and the way this superstructure, this government evolved was that it moved towards a form of democracy within the majority white population, such that white men by 1828 won the right to vote, women won the right to vote in 1920. And at the same time, the US had elections and free speech and the right to assemble. For black America, there was a kind of terrorist fascist dictatorship organized not only in the South, but all over the country, but in particular in the South. And so while there was a democratic superstructure for some parts of the population, there was a kind of terrorist fascist like regime for another very substantial part of the population. And that was black America, but also in terms of the destruction and genocide, and then dislocation of native nations, indigenous nations, and the terrible racism visited on immigrant populations, especially those from non-European countries. There has been these kind of like this duality within American democracy. And this duality was so pronounced, the apartheid and the racist character of the system was so pronounced that as we have said before on our show, Hitler and the Nazis actually modeled Nazi law on U.S. race law, U.S. race law regarding black America, U.S. race law regarding immigration. So the U.S. superstructure has both a democratic element but also a fascistic dictatorial element in the superstructure. But what happened in the 1950s and 60s was that there was this vast expansion of democracy and a lessening of the terrorist fascist dictatorship against black America as a consequence of what we would call the civil rights revolution, the mass movement that went on from 1955 all the way until 1970, but beyond, although it took different forms, that the system of terrorism and semi-fascism or fascism directed against minority, so-called minority communities was lessened and democracy was expanded, but it was expanded because of a near revolutionary uprising in the United States in the 1960s. That's what it was between 1964 and 1970, there was rebellion after rebellion after rebellion in almost every urban area in the United States. And then the bourgeoisie, the capitalists said, well, let's expand democracy under this extreme you know, revolutionary struggle dynamic that was taking place. And it's been our view that a big section of the ruling class while pushed back was never content with this expansion of democracy. And now, with stacked federal courts, stacked Supreme Court, and 30 of the 50 state legislatures dominated by the ultra right, again largely as a consequence of gerrymandering, parts of the ultra right were thinking that the Supreme Court could do as it did with Roe, get rid of things that held back the unimpeded dominance of capital over the rest of society, and Moore v. Harper would be the vehicle for it, but. Now that so many people are aware of it, now that so many people have been sort of sounding the alarm, you know, we were kind of a lone voice in the beginning, but it's really sort of everywhere right now. Not everywhere. I mean, it still needs to be expanded, but it's grown a great deal in the last few months. And also parts of the Republican establishment were alarmed by the midterm election outcome, where instead of there being a red wave against a very unpopular Joe Biden Republicans barely squeezed by in the House to get the majority. That was because of resistance from parts of the population who were voting not really for the Democrats, but against the Republicans and against the ultra right because of Dobbs, because of the elimination of abortion rights. So a section of the ruling class or the right wing of the ruling class in the Republican Party feels actually the Trumpism and this ultra right tendency that's far beyond Trump, this effort to sort of alter the superstructure of society by going back, taking back expanded democracy, that it will not succeed and that it will backfire. And of course, for the ruling class writ large, it's much better to have a stable democracy whereby the oppressed and exploited give their consent to those who rule over them. And that's the virtue of America's two-party system Where elections are held every two or four years for the people who will oppress you for the next four years and manage a system that oppresses you. But you can take some comfort in the sense that there's variety in your choices. That's a more stable form of class rule for American capitalism. And parts of the right wing realize or fear that the ultra right, just like Trump, in their overreach to succeed, will trigger. Mass resistance. Anyway, Nicole, I will leave it there. Again, thank you to all of the patrons. You know, we have so many listeners, and really it's about, well, I don't know the exact percentage, but a relatively small percentage of you, the people who are on this call and the patrons, really do the thing that must be done in order to sustain our show. And we really urge everyone who's listening to the show, likes the show, relies on the show would be unhappy if the show went away. Do your part and also become a patron. There's many different levels. You can subscribe for five dollars a month or ten or 20 or 100. You know, you have lots of options, but please, please, please do your part.
0: That's all for this preview. If you'd like access to the rest of this seminar and our entire archive of exclusive seminars with Brian Becker, become a patron at Patreon dot com slash the socialist program. We are an independent show and we cannot make this programming
1: without you. Thanks so much for your support.